should we inherit? Well, I'm sure we would all like to inherit Doddington Hall in Lincolnshire, a fine Elizabethan house that I visited last summer as we were emerging from lockdown. But what attracted my attention was less the architecture of the house itself than this portrait of Sarah Gunman. Sarah Gunman did inherit the house from her father in 1814. Probably at Bath, she met and in 1805 married a man who was 25 years her senior, James Gunman, who was a wealthy businessman in Dover. Sarah moved to Dover, where she met a dashing military hero and widower, Lieutenant Colonel George Jarvis, who was the youngest of 21 children of the owner of a slave plantation. After Waterloo, George became a banker in Dover and helped Sarah with financial difficulties relating to her estate. James Gunman died in 1824, and Sarah and George planned to marry. But sadly, Sarah died of consumption in 1825. In her will, Sarah gave her mother the use of the house and estate during her lifetime, and then gave, devised, and bequeathed them to my friend, George Jarvis, and his heirs. George inherited the house and the estate in 1829, and on his death, they passed to his eldest son, entirely out of the family line of Sarah. And that is the point of my story. Sarah had complete freedom to do as she wished with her property, something that did not apply in France, against which Jarvis spent many years fighting. This real-life story could be from a novel by Jane Austen or Thackeray. Disputes over wills and the vagaries of inheritance were staples of novels from Austen to Dickens to Trollope and beyond. Indeed, wills were crucial in George Eliot's later novels. You may remember that in Middlemarsh, Casabon left all of his wealth to his wife Dorothea on condition that she never remarried Will Ladislaw. In other words, the will could be used as a controlling device beyond the grave. Some years ago, my fellow Gresham visiting professor John Mullen published a list of the 10 best novels with wills as their plot, a topic which would make an excellent lecture. But that's not what I'm proposing to do in this second lecture on intergenerational justice. What I want to consider is how were assets passed from one generation to the next? What were the strategies adopted by families to handle their assets? And what were the wider debates over the desirable form of social order and state structure. My aim is to show how inheritance practices have always been deeply contested and politicised, embedded in legal, social and political structures. This insight should make us more alert to the possibility of making change now and not accepting that our present arrangements are sacrosanct. What I intend to do is look at three themes which were contested. The first is, should there be testamentary freedom or constraint? Secondly, should landed families be allowed to conserve their property into future generations? And thirdly, should inheritances be taxed? And if so, should the rate be sufficient to break up large fortunes? I'll be looking at this in a comparative perspective, 
drawing upon my own work on England, but also talking about France, Germany, and the United States, drawing upon this excellent book by Beckett on inherited wealth. My first question is, should there be testamentary freedom or rules in the making of wills? Both the real-life story and the fiction with which I started reflect a distinctive feature of English law, testamentary freedom. In most European legal systems, such freedom was constrained. And if England stands at one extreme, France stands at the other. Or testamentary freedom was initially removed in the revolution and then only partly reinstated in the Napoleonic Civil Code of 1804. Two conceptions of property were debated in the National Assembly in 1791. The first view was natural law. The state should not restrict the right of disposition. And this view was put forward by Jacques Casales. In his view, it is only with testamentary freedom that fathers rule their families. Thanks to it, they are accorded honour and respect by their children into old age in a way that virtue would not be able to accomplish. In other words, freedom to dispose of your property was a way of controlling the next generation. The alternative view was that private property was a right granted by society. The state should give priority to the common good. This view was put forward by Mirabeau. He opposed testamentary freedom and argued for positive law to shape the transmission of property according to the principle of equality in the state and in the family. As he said in, in the debate in 1791, I do not know how it should be possible to reconcile the new French constitution in which everything is traced back to the great and admirable principle of political equality with a law that allows a father and mother to forget these sacred principles of natural equality when it comes to their children, with a law that favours differences that are universally condemned and thus further increases the disparities brought forth in society by differences in talent and industry, instead of correcting them through the equal division of domestic goods. Now, in 1791, equal division was only introduced in the absence of a will, in testacy. Most middle-class families still wanted freedom to dispose of their assets as they wished, which was in tension with the principle of equality. The situation changed when the Jacobins took power. In 1793, testamentary freedom was abolished, except for a portion which was disposable, a portion of one-tenth where there were direct descendants and one-sixth where there were no direct descendants. And this element of the estate could not be left to children in order to prevent a breach of the principle of equality. What was the aim of this change in 1793? Well, firstly, it was to alter family structures. Equality between children would remove the ability of the father to make arbitrary decisions. It was against patriarchy. Secondly, there was a desire to prevent dynastic continuity of noble families. And thirdly, there was a desire to create conditions for a new political structure 
greater equality within the family would lead to greater equality in the state and to liberty. After the demise of the Jacobins, the bourgeoisie did push back to reassert freedom for their own decisions over the intergenerational transfer of assets. They wished to restore the autonomy of property owners. In 1800, the portion of the estate which could be disposed of freely was increased to a quarter, and it could now be left to a, an individual child. And this compromise was the basis of the Napoleonic Civil Code of 1804. If there was one child, the testator could freely dispose of half the assets with two children, a third of the three children, he could freely dispose of a quarter of the estate. The civil code then, largely but not entirely, rejected the natural law justification of private right of inheritance in order to treat children equally and to prevent dynastic concentration of wealth. And that civil code of 1804 largely remains in place today. So in France, testamentary freedom was rejected because it went against natural equality as the basis of social order in the family and the state. What of Germany? At unification in 1870, most civil law codes in the states, individual states, allowed testamentary freedom. And liberals continue to argue for unrestricted property rights on the basis of natural law, but they face strong opposition. Conservative critics claimed that testamentary freedom was associated with Roman law and was contrary to the Germanic legal tradition, which defined property as belonging to the family and not to the individual. They rejected testamentary freedom in order to protect the family as the moral basis of society. And that was the position taken by Hegel in 1821. In his view, the mere individual is transcended by the family whose resources are shared in common. As he said, the family's resources are common property so that no member has particular property, although each has a right to what is held in common. The individual had no right to dispose of property against the right of the family. As Hegel said, the simple direct arbitrariness of the deceased cannot be made the principle of the right to make a will, especially if it is opposed to the substantial right of the family. So the case against testamentary freedom here is not about equality as the basis of social and political order as it was in France. Rather, the family should be protected as the moral foundation of society against excessive bourgeois individualism. The creation of a unified German civil code was debated between 1874 and 1896, and Hegel's view was the main case against testamentary freedom. In 1889, Otto van Gierke rejected the more individualistic approach, which was still found in the draft civil code, building upon the testamentary freedom of the pre-1870 state civil codes. He was clear that we must never construct inheritance law on the basis of the individual will. 
the incomparably valuable social function and the immortal inner justification of inheritance law lies only in the realization of the succession of generations inherent in the natural structure of the family, in the assumption of the now empty place by those individuals most immediately destined to do so by virtue of the structure of the social body. But the Civil Code of 1896 reached a compromise. It accepted some testamentary freedom that existed prior to unification, but laid down a compulsory portion of 50%, to which all legitimate heirs were entitled, even if they were excluded from the will. So it's, it's Gierke's point about the structure of the social body and the moral structure of the family. Individualism was constrained by a family social definition of property. And this was taken further by the Third Reich. Testamentary freedom was seen as individualistic. Inheritance should be about the transmission of property in the family, the clan, and the national community. What about England? In the absence of revolution, the natural law approach was in the ascendant, and this was clearly stated in 1870 by Chief Justice Coburn. He adopted the standard defence of English testamentary freedom, that, as he said, the power of disposing of property in anticipation of death has ever been regarded as one of the most valuable of the rights incidental to property. As he said, the English law leaves everything to the unfettered discretion of the testator, on the assumption that, though in some instances caprice or passion or the power of new ties or artful contrivance or sinister influence may, need, may lead to the neglect of claims that ought to be attended to, yet the instincts, affections and common sentiments of mankind may be safely trusted to secure on the whole a better disposition of the property of the dead, and one more accurately adjusted to the requirements of each particular case than could be obtained through a distribution prescribed by the stereotyped and inflexible rules of a general law. Well, that dislike of standard stereotyped laws was characteristic of the English common law tradition. Testamentary freedom was also justified as a way of creating a dynamic, flexible society in which wealth followed talent. The Royal Commission on Real Property of 1829 said that the power of disposition was required for the public good, for a testamentary power is given which stimulates industry and encourages accumulation. Property is allowed to be moulded according to the circumstances of every family. Now, that could be very important in industrial and commercial families, where a decision might be made to leave the business asset to the most capable family member and other assets, perhaps government bonds, to those with less business aptitude. So freedom of disposition was the way to best use the, the assets in the most effective way. But testamentary freedom could also pose risks. Lord Justice James pointed out in 1874 
that a man may leave his virtuous wife and deserving children penniless and bestow the whole of his fortune upon the vilest companions of his profligacy, the most worthless partners of his vices, the most wicked accomplices of his crimes, and the law cannot gainsay him. So in other words, freedom could lead to immoral action. Above all, the case against freedom of law, freedom of disposition, rather, drew, as in France, on a desire to break the hold of primogeniture that sustained the aristocracy. And the reason here was both political and about economic efficiency. A free market in land would, so the reformers argued, complement free trade and competition in a dynamic economy. The risk was that this sounded like French Revolution. In 1830, Daniel O'Connell argued in the Commons that the freedom of testamentary uh, wills should be restricted to ensure that the testator gave to each child a substantial share and to remove the ability to favour one child over another. He accepted that he was taking from the parent the power of distributing his property. He readily conceded that cabining in parental power was his goal because he knew that it was sometimes put up to auction, as it were, in families and otherwise much abused. So he wanted a rule to make sure that property was more equally distributed. He was called the liberator. He supported emancipation of Catholics, the end of union with Ireland, the abolition of slavery. And his opponents saw a threat to social order, an attempt to assimilate our law to that of France. In the Commons, Charles Tennyson feared the result of O'Connell's suggestion. It would, he said, destroy the aristocracy and dislocate society. It would have a most prejudicial effect on the industry of the people. Parents would not labour and accumulate to be the mere slaves of their children, and to deprive them of the power of disposing of their property would paralyse all their exertions and be a serious blow to our national prosperity and all the commercial restrictions that were ever invented. Well, O'Connell had the support of many radical land reformers, but his proposal failed, perhaps for that very reason, and testamentary freedom continued as it largely still does. There were changes in the law in 1938 and 1975 to introduce some limits on freedom. The court could vary the distribution of an estate where the will failed to make reasonable financial provision to a spouse, child or dependent, but largely freedom remained. Otherwise, a will could be challenged in court on the grounds that the testator lacked mental capacity to make a rational disposition of property. It might even be argued that by definition, disinheriting children was a sign of mental incapacity, much depended on the judge. In the case of Banks and Goodfellow in 1870, Coburn accepted that Banks, despite being confined to a lunatic asylum and convinced that he was pursued by evil spirits, was nevertheless rational enough to disinherit his family. Now, Coburn himself uh, never married. He had illegitimate children and was refused a peerage by Victoria for his bad morals. And his fellow judges 
felt that his temper was so bad that they doubted he was sane. In 1873, the judge in Boughton and Knight ruled that, in fact, to disinherit children was contrary to the whole current of human nature and that such repulsion and aversion are themselves evidence of unsoundness of mind. So it depended upon the view here of the judge. But the main way in which testamentary freedom might be constrained was through inheritance of real property, which is usually covered by another legal device, the strict settlement. And that is the second area to which I will now turn. Jane Austen understood another aspect of inheritance, the use of settlements. In Pride and Prejudice, Mrs. Bennet complained bitterly against the cruelty of settling an estate away from a family of five daughters in favour of a man whom nobody cared anything about. Well, Mr. Bennet had a life interest in the estate and he could not himself decide to whom to leave it. That was determined by the deed of settlement. The life interest would pass to the nearest male heir, Mr. Collins. Jane Austen had reason to understand the process, for her brother Edward himself inherited entailed estates from distant cousins. This use of the strict settlement and the entail for life estates was attacked by radicals for allowing the accumulation of great landed estates, preventing a free market in land and allowing aristocrats to charge excessive price for the use of land that harmed enterprising members of society who were building factories or houses. In 1881, one such land reformer, George Broderick, said, a land system founded on the law of primogeniture and guarded by strict family settlement has a direct tendency to prevent the dispersion of land. Hence the attempt of the radicals to break the system, or if not absolutely outlawing it, then at least to tax land as producing unearned and unmerited wealth. This position was taken by Winston Churchill as a member of the Liberal government of 1906 up to the First World, First World War. At the time of the People's Budget of 1909, he said that the land monopolist renders no service to the community. He contributes nothing to the general welfare. He contributes nothing even to a process from which his own enrichment is derived. In his view, every form of enterprise, every step in material progress is only undertaken after the land monopolist has skimmed the cream off for himself. In his view, social and political stability rested on a wider dispersion of property among the people. Well, how did these settlements work? And were they as bad as the radicals believed? In reality, they were designed to deal with claims within the family rather than to stitch up the land market. Let's consider how it worked, which we can see in this diagram. At any time, the estate was held by a life tenant, the tenant in possession at the top of the diagram. That life tenant did not have absolute ownership, could not himself decide to sell the estate. On the marriage of the eldest son, the tenant in tail, 
a deed of settlement was created that laid down the succession of the son as the life tenant, to be followed by his eldest son, not yet born, as a contingent remainder. When the son succeeded his father, the whole process would be repeated. The idea was to keep the estate intact, as the radical said. The life tenant couldn't sell, and it passed down the generations by primogeniture. So we could see why Broderick and Churchill might complain. It seemed to keep land off the market to increase its price, and its price would be going up because of the enterprise of other people who were building factories or towns. But in fact, the income from the capitalist asset was allocated more widely. Mrs. Bennett saw the settlement as a patriarchal device to protect male heirs, to exclude daughters. But in fact, the life tenant had to pay out sums from the capital asset, which were not left to his individual decision. And this was overseen, as you see here on the diagram, by the trustees. They had responsibility to make sure that the income from the estate was allocated as the deed of settlement laid out. So the widowed mother, the dowager, at the top of the diagram, would receive a jointure. Then the younger sons and daughters would receive an annuity or portions at marriage or an annuity if they, they never got married. The result of this was that the allocation of the income became more egalitarian. And in fact, the estate could be so burdened with these various claims upon the income that as Lord Winchelsea uh, complained, he was merely the slave of the family. And that was especially the case where the heir, like Mr. Collins, was indirect, because usually the deed of settlement would pay a higher portion to daughters if somebody from outside the direct line, like Mr. Collins, uh, became the life tenant. And even more than the allocation of assets from the capital, it was also possible to sell land. It wasn't really as stitched up as one might imagine. Henry Broom, the radical lawyer, said in 1828, I considered the English law as hitting very happily the just medium between too great strictness and too great latitude in the disposition of landed property. So what was the latitude? But when the settlement was made between each generation in succession, it was possible at that stage to decide to sell some land. Indeed, the father might die before the marriage of the eldest son, who would then have a free hand to do as he wished. It was possible to keep some land outside the settlement, to have flexibility in the management of the estate. And if necessary, it was also possible to go to Parliament to get a private act break the settlement, although that was rather expensive. Now, this system in, in England, the, the settlement, stood somewhere between France and Germany on the spectrum. In most European legal systems, the settlement was guided by what was known as the Roman law of fidei commissum, committed to one's trust. In the case of France before the revolution, substitutions were permitted for two generations. But these were abolished in 1792 to remove the dead hand, to break up large aristocratic estates, 
and to create the basis of political liberty by a more equal distribution of landed property and to dismantle the structure of the absolutist state. With the restoration of the monarchy after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, this was changed. In 1826, Charles X reintroduced substitutions to restore the old elite and to contain the power of the bourgeoisie. To his opponents, primogeniture and substitution were undermining equality and liberty. And in the revolution of 1848, substitutions were again and finally abolished. So in France, much more flexibility and liberty than in the, than in the settlement system in England. Germany, on the other hand, was much stricter over the 19th century. The a settlement or the fidie commis was a way of sustaining the family basis of order within both the family and the state. In Germany, the fidie commis was unlimited in time and was difficult to break. Under the Prussian Law Code of 1807, it needed the, the unanimous decision of the family council of all living claimants. So it was more rigid than in France and in England. Although this system was abolished in some states during French occupation, it was soon restored as a way of sustaining order and political stability. In 1821, Hegel supported it for reasons of state. It provided the, the nobility with security to fulfill its public duties to the state. During the 1848 revolutions, the Fidier Commiss was attacked as the basis of an absolute state and a hierarchical society. And in December 1848, abolition was agreed in the National Assembly. But crucially, it was left to individual states to draft transitional rules. So little happened, and the measure was repealed in Prussia, for example, in 1852. So this system spread in the second half of the 19th century to protect landowners. It was seen by the Conservatives as a defence against bourgeois individualism. And the system survived as a result of the weaker political standing of the industrial and commercial middle class than in France. Both the family and the state were seen as intergenerational social institutions. The living generation had only a lifetime interest in the property. In Germany, this system worked because younger sons could get service in the army, the civil service and the church as a balancing mechanism. Change occurred after the First World War. In 1919, the Weimar Constitution stated that the Fidie Commiss should be dissolved. As in 1848, implementation was left to the individual states, so there were delays, but by 1932, about two-thirds had been dissolved. When Hitler came to power in 1933, many of the aristocrats hoped that the Nazis would reverse the trend, but in fact, on the whole, the Nazi party favoured small family farms rather than large aristocratic estates. An authority to dissolve the Fidie Commiss was transferred to the Reich in 1938, and all were to be dissolved by the 1st of January 1939. 
So we see here that as with testamentary freedom against rules for wills, so with settlements. The succession of generations varied between countries and reflected political structures, legal and social assumptions about what property was and who had claims on it, the individual, the family, or the wider community. In the 20th century, these debates took a different form. Should inheritances be taxed at what rate and on what basis? My third theme then is to tax or not to tax inheritances. Should property passing between generations be taxed and if so, at what rate and for what reasons? These points have become the most contentious elements of inheritance in the 20th century up to the present. And I wish to address this theme by looking at three questions. The first question is, should the tax be paid on the total value of the estate that was being left? Or should it be paid by the recipients according to what they received? And should that be according to the closeness of the family relationship? In the case of Germany, the tax was paid on what was received by the individual, not on the total estate. In 1906, the Reich inheritance tax was differentiated by kin, the spouses and children were exempt or paid a low rate. As a result, about 80% of inherited wealth was exempted. In 1909, the Reich, in order to try and increase its revenues, it, no longer, it didn't ha yet have a, an income tax, tried to introduce a tax on the totality of the estate, but that failed because it was a breach of the familial understanding of property. Such a tax was adopted in 1919 to help pay for the costs of the war, but it was soon repealed in 1922. The German system therefore rested on and continued to rest on inheritance tax on what was received according to the family relationship and with a low level of progression or higher rate on, on larger estates. In the case of France, an inheritance tax was introduced in 1790, paid by the recipient and dependent upon kinship. An element of progression was introduced, so large inheritance paid more in 1901, and the tax was taken still higher between 1917 and 1926 to help pay for the war. And also in 1917, an estate tax was introduced on the totality of the estate. The aim in both cases was to raise revenue rather than to redistribute. And when the financial situation eased, the rates were reduced. And in 1934, the estate tax was abolished. And in France, inheritances are still taxed on what is received according to kinship. In the United States, the tax was paid on the total value of the estate, not by what was received, unlike in France and Germany. I'll come back to this point later on. In the case of Britain, both forms of taxation were used. The probate duty of 1694 was a, a tax on the estate and what was left. 
1796, William Pitt added a legacy duty, which is paid by the recipient according to kinship. In 1894, the Liberal Chancellor Exchequer, William Harcourt, introduced progression into the estate duty, and that was increased further when the Liberal government came back to power in 1906. Meanwhile, legacies continue to pay according to kinship. In 1909, the legacy duty exempted or both charged 1% on what was received by lineal descendants, but it rose to 10% on uncles, aunts and their descendants. The legacy duty was abolished in 1949. So then Britain was like the United States in only applying the tax on the size of the estate left. The second issue was whether inherited wealth should be taxed in order to rebalance between active and passive wealth. Now, this tax would not be at a confiscatory level. It was rather to argue that inherited wealth had not been earned. It was passive. It wasn't a result of achievement, effort or enterprise. Indeed, it might harm enterprise if more wealth is in the hands of those people who were not themselves enterprising. Such a view was put forward by John Stuart Mill in 1848. He said, I see nothing objectionable in fixing a limit to what one may acquire by the mere favour of others without any exercise of his faculties, and in requiring that if he desires any further accession of fortunes, he shall work for it. The same line was taken by Winston Churchill when he was appointed Ch Chancellor Exchequer in 1924. He said, the existing system of death duties is a certain corrective against the development of a race of idle rich. If they are idle, they will cease in a few generations to be rich. In 1919, the highest rate of tax on estates was 40% to help pay for the war. In his first budget of 1925, Churchill actually raised death duties on many estates in order to reduce the income tax on the middle class. In other words, to tax the passive accumulation in order to encourage those people who are actively earning. His aim, as he said in the budget speech, was an encouragement to people to bestir themselves and make more money while they are alive and bring up their heirs to do the same. The process of the creation of new wealth is beneficial to the whole community. The process of squatting on old wealth, though valuable, is a far less lively agent. We shall never shake ourselves clear from the debts of war and break into a definitely larger period, except by the energetic creation of new wealth. A premium on effort is my aim, and a penalty on inertia may well be its companion. Now, should one go further and break up large fortunes? So that's my third question. In Germany, as we noted, the level of progression was low. 
It was seen as being against the family's ability to provide for surviving members to break up states. At the maximum rate, it was never above 38%. And you see here the uh, figures from Piketty uh, comparing the different countries I'll be talking about. And in this graph, this table, you can see it in a, in a, a graph form of lines for the different countries. In the United States, by contrast, large fortunes were considered to be dangerous. And this is particularly the case by the end of the 19th century with progressive and populist attacks on the robber barons. In 1916, as a result of these campaigns, an estate tax was introduced. Democratic Congressman William Cox thought, and I quote, it is unjust, un-American and undemocratic to let such tremendous fortunes be transmitted. In 1925, the Republican Secretary of the Treasury and himself a wealthy banker, Andrew Mellon, attempted to abolish the tax. He failed, but he did secure a reduction. But that was soon reversed when Roosevelt became president in 1935. That's in 1933. He became president at the, in the depths of the Depression, and he believed that shifting wealth from the rich would increase the purchasing power of poorer members of society, which would allow them to buy surplus output and end the depression. But he also needed to respond to the political campaign of Senator Huey Long, who launched the Share Our Wealth Society. This had seven million members. In his speech to Congress in June 1935, Roosevelt set out his agenda. The transmission from generation to generation of vast fortunes by will, inheritance or gift is not consistent with the ideal and sentiments of American people. Such accumulations amount to the perpetuation of great and undesirable concentrations of control over the enjoyment and welfare of many, many others. Such inherited economic power is as inconsistent with the ideals of this generation as inherited political power was inconsistent with the ideals of the generation which established our government. So the War of Independence had got rid of the British monarchy and aristocracy. Now was the time to get rid of concentrations of economic power. In 1935, the rates on largest estates went as high as 70%. And as you see, American taxation of large fortunes was the highest of the four countries on the table. Roosevelt's aim was not to maximise revenue that could have been achieved by a higher rate across a whole range of, of, of estates. Rather, he wanted to break up dynastic wealth. Now, the rate remained high right up until the 1970s. But in 1976, a backlash started, and that was taken further by President Reagan in 1981, and by George W. Bush, who signed the law to phase out the estate tax completely by 2010. It returned after, after a year at 40%. So why was there this shift? I think there were three reasons. 
The first is that during the Great Depression, behaviour of the wealthy could be blamed for the problems. In the 1970s, this was no longer the case. Rather, it seemed that successful businesses were spreading benefits to a wider proportion of the American population. <clears throat> Secondly, the issue was no longer to increase the consumption of the poor. There was now inflation. Rather, the problem was how to secure adequate investment. And it was argued by economists such as Milton Friedman that investment came from the savings of the rich. And thirdly, private property was increasingly seen as, as inviolable, whereas in the past, property was seen as being created by the efforts of society as a whole and therefore liable to taxation. George W. Bush's policy of reducing or even abolishing the estate tax led to some wealthy individuals like Warren Buffett and George Soros arguing that it should in fact be retained. To them, abolition was bad for our democracy, our economy, our society. And as Soros said, without the estate tax, you will in effect have an aristocracy of wealth which means you pass down the ability to command the resources of the nation based on her heredity rather than merit. The opponents of the tax now referred to it as the death tax, a rhetorical shift which made it sound like an unfeeling imposition on grief. Supporters of the tax, perhaps also unfeelingly, called it the Paris Hilton tax implying that Paris Hilton didn't deserve to be such a wealthy person. The debate over this tax continues in America. What was the situation in Britain? Well, as in the United States, there was a shift to a redistributive agenda in the interwar period. In the 1920s, Labour could agree with Winston Churchill that death duties were, and I quote, one of the most legitimate and socially beneficial forms of taxation. But Labour went much further. Not only did Labour wish to tax inheritances, but they wished to tax wealth itself, arguing that wealth was created by the activities of others, was misappropriated by those who held it. So therefore, it was desirable to tax the source of private wealth by taxing profits or by nationalisation. This would make capital available for public investment, and public investment would not produce inequalities in the future with private people taking the benefit of that investment, rather it would be spread to society as a whole. Hugh Dalton at this stage thought that an attack on inheritance was needed to, I quote, carry the inner citadel of capitalism to complete the work of socialization as part of this wider package. This was different from Churchill, who wanted to reduce large fortunes in order to spread property more widely, in order to preserve capitalism. At the end of the Second World War, Dalton became Charles the Exchequer and could now uh, actually implement his views. In 1939, the highest rate of tax on estates was 
1946, Dalton raised it to 75%. And in 1949, Stafford Cripps took it to 80%. By 1969, the highest marginal rate was 86%. Now, a pushback clearly started in Britain during the period of the Thatcher administration for similar reasons to the United States. And this new attitude was captured in John Major's speech to the Conservative Party Conference of 1991. John Major said, I want to see wealth cascading down the generations. We do not see each generation starting out anew with the past cut off and the future ignored. I believe that we must go much further in encouraging every family to save and to own, to extend every family's ability to pass on something to their children, to build up something of their own for their own. Labour have their eyes on the money stored in the homes in which millions of people now live and in the businesses they have created. But I believe that what people have worked to build up in life, the state should never destroy. Well, the opposite view was expressed by Harcourt back in 1894. As he said, the right of a dead hand to dispose of property is a pure creation of the law. And the state has the right to prescribe the conditions and limitations under which that power shall be exercised. And what I've been showing in this lecture so far is the way in which different societies at different times did in fact prescribe the conditions and limitations under which the power to pass on property should be exercised. What I want to turn to now in the final few minutes of my lecture is what are the implications for us now and looking ahead into the future? I started this lecture by asking, should we inherit? Well, the answer to that is surely yes. What I think my historical analysis should show, however, is that the real question is, how should we inherit? Because that has changed between societies and over time. Should we impose more taxation upon estates and inheritance now in order to solve the problems of how to pay for COVID. Well, as you see from this graph, the percentage of government revenue that has come from death duties has fallen from about 10% to below 1%. So one view here would be that here is a, an area where additional revenue could be derived. On the other hand, it could be argued the taxation of inheritances is now much less important as a solution to the problems of inequality. Before the First World War in Britain, the total wealth transmitted each year in the form of both estates and gifts was about 20% of national income. That fell to about 10% after the Second World War and below 5% by the late 1970s. Now it has since then gone up again by the time of the global financial crisis it was back to 8%. And the economist Tony Atkinson has argued that this return of inheritance means that there is now more tax capacity and it is necessary to look again at what his role should be as the basis of government revenue. There are certainly a lot of issues at the moment around growing inequality. 
there's a return to the problem addressed in the early 20th century by progressives and populists in the United States and by the new liberals in this country, the concentration of wealth becoming too high. Many economists and some business people now fear that growing inequality is economically destructive, socially destabilizing and politically dangerous. And I can point to a few recent books which have been making this case. In Trade Wars, A Class War, Klein and Pettis argue that inequality has led to a savings glut to the rich, which leads to lower consumption, and that means there is less incentive to invest and to create more jobs. It also leads, they say, to trade wars, as countries with surplus output search for outlets overseas. They argue that shifting income and wealth to greater equality would increase consumption and provide an incentive for investment and hence for more and better jobs. It was also the case at the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries that competition was decreasing as monopolies uh, rose. And Thomas Philippon argues in The Great Reversal that this is happening again. Competition is declining, businesses are gaining from barriers to entry, and they can make larger profits as labour becomes weaker, with weaker trade unions and more precarious employment. <clears throat> Thomas Piketty has argued that there is growing inequality of wealth and income. But as Case and Deaton point out in Deaths and Despair, it is also inequality in life expectancy. They showed that for the first time since 1918, life expectancy for the, for the lower income distribution in the United States is falling. They point out that capitalism took people out of poverty in the past and it is now failing. Now, is the answer to these problems to be found in a return to higher rates of estate and inheritance tax? There are certainly arguments put forward for the solution, for example, to pay for care in old age. If everybody were to receive state support for social care in old age, that could be paid for by a higher inheritance tax paid by everybody. There's also a lot of debate at the moment about an annual wealth tax, not a tax on death and inheritance, but a tax on assets during life. Again, it is argued that that would be a way of paying COVID. Others doubt that such an approach is either politically realistic or administratively feasible. And they suggest other approaches. Perhaps they say the solution is to prevent large fortunes arising in the first place by restoring levels of competition, breaking up monopolistic behavior, reducing barriers to entry, the argument of Case, Deaton and Philippon. It could also be argued that there should be a restoration of higher levels of progressive income tax and a tax on house property based upon up-to-date assessments. The, the increase in the value of house property being a major driver of growing inequality. There could also be a solution to the problems of business corporations eroding the tax base and shifting profits to tax havens. Personally, I think that 
there should also be some consideration to the taxation of estates or inheritances. As we've seen, this varies over time and between societies. It's not immutable and we could think about it again. And how should we think about it? Well, perhaps not by taxing estates, but moving to the system which I've outlined in the lecture, which has happened in some societies at some times, to tax what is received. Taxation of estates at death could look like an unjust tax on what has been accumulated during the lifetime. But taxing what people receive, which they have not earned, as Mill argued, could be seen as not being personally merited and therefore more difficult to justify. This idea was put forward by James Mead in 1978, repeated by James Murleys in 2011, both Nobel Prize winners. And it was also picked up by Tony Atkinson in 2015. What they called for was an accession tax, a tax on gifts and inheritances received by an individual which would be imposed on the cumulative total received by that individual over their entire lifetime. And Tony Atkinson links that idea with giving a capital endowment or a minimum inheritance to everybody so that they have a good start in life, a sum that could be used for training, education or housing. So everybody's start in life shouldn't be about things other than the mere chance of inheriting. Would such a solution be feasible? Well, what I hope I've shown in this lecture is that things have changed. And if they've changed in the past, they can change again in the future. Personally, I would favour such a shift in policy. Mead and Atkinson were both social democrats who wished to create a fairer capitalism in which prosperity is shared. Wealth would cascade down the generations, but in a fairer way from which everybody could benefit. I leave you to consider what you would do to resolve a major issue of inequality and the need to pay for COVID in the coming years. <laughs>